welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. I got to thinking of what the world says about enemies, and so I did what we often do on any Android or Apple phone. I looked to the Google. And I just was curious, and so I did a Google search, and I, I typed in the following phrases. First, I typed in, how to deal with your enemies. Now, all of these produced a search in 57 to 15, 0.57 to 0.59 seconds. That's the other fascinating thing to me, how fast information can be gathered. But when I said how to deal with your enemies, this search produced 191 million results. I did not have time to go through all of them for you this morning. And I wanted to see what's the world's general opinion, so then I decided, well, how to love your enemies. So I typed in, how do you love your enemies? And that search produced 168 million results. So how to deal with your enemies, how to love your enemies, that's a pretty popular thing. And then I thought, well, let's take it just a step further, Google. And I typed in, how to forgive your enemies. Now, that only produced 26 million results. And I thought, well, I'll just take it a whole other step. And I typed in, how to be reconciled to your enemies. It was 9.7 million results. You see, I think the world around us knows easily, how do you deal with your enemies when it's over 190 million? Because we sure know conflict, after all. My phrase that I've developed now is, the world needs to learn how to face their problems, not Facebook them. Can I get an amen? Amen. So, 191 million about how to deal with your enemies, but when it comes to the point of reconciliation, wow, 9.7 million. The, 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 The difference is amazing, 180 million different hits. It tells something about the the vast difference. You see, it's one thing to easily be uh, in our world's value of identifying people around you. As I preached last week about the spiritual dimensions in what you can learn of your spirituality in Houston traffic, someone said to me, leaving, and I give you credit, but apologize, I don't remember who. It said, you know, I've always wondered, why are all the slow drivers in front of me on the road idiots and all the fast drivers behind me lunatics? Now, I want to say a disclaimer before I ever move into this sermon. There are times when, as pastors, we will speak on topics in Scripture, and I want to be very clear, these are not absolute prescriptions. I want to recognize that I do not know how you have been hurt, and I do not know all of your stories, so please do not hear these as rigid, absolute conscriptions or prescriptions That's just, thus saith the Lord, do this, and it won't ever happen again. Or, if I'm not recognizing the pain you feel, then maybe I'm not speaking directly to that. But when we talk about loving our enemies, it can be an incredibly difficult thing because I don't know what your journey has been like. Rabbi Beth Baer said it this way, 
in the case of an enemy who is unkind or mean, rather than one who physically tries to harm us, we need to shift our perspective. If we meet hate with hate, react with anger, call for punishment, it will return to us. Our goal would be to try to understand how enemies see the world and why they view it and us the way that they do. Each step dissolves another layer. And this is what I love that she says. Look at that last line. Humility is a sign we successfully passed the test. So I want to acknowledge the mystery of what it means to forgive and to have enemy, but our goal is to look into the way in which your human relationships can be a hindrance to your pursuit of perfection. Not the perfection of the world as a cartoon image where everybody smiles, but perfection in the biblical sense, which is the undergirding sense of completeness or wholeness which is captured at the last verse in this fifth chapter. So what about the context before we move to the text? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and so Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is considered to be the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to do some reading later in the week, which is interesting, and see the differences and nuances, Luke carries the same information in Luke chapter 6, but it's called the Sermon on the Plain. I always find it interesting to note the lens through which Matthew sees things and the lens through which Luke sees things. And if you've ever been to the Mount of Beatitudes, which I have, if you're at the top, it's the Sermon on the Mount. But if you're in sort of this parabolic kind of flowing field that goes out towards the Sea of Galilee, it looks like you're in the plain. A matter of perspective, and could that alone be helpful to us when we think about what it is to love our enemies. So in respect to the gospel, I ask you to stand as you are able. We're going to read verses 43 through 40. I'm going to read verses 43 through 47 in Matthew chapter 5. And we are all going to read verse 48 together. Verse 43 speaks these words. Hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends out rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? And let us join together now. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I was with our youth yesterday, so I'm going to apologize at times. I'm going to be a little scratchy in the throat because... Uh, I made the huge blunder of going to see them during what's known as color wars. I want you to imagine a um, one-pound bag of chalk that is colored in four different colors, and basically uh, they were to try and get each other with the color, and that's just powdery mixed everywhere. The kids at the uh, town center today will look blue and green and pink, 
and purple um, because once you mix water with it, it tends to dye the hands and hair. So I personally consider an achievement to my skill, veracity, speed, and thinness uh, that they were not able to catch me. And if you don't believe that, just know I had the keys to the church van. Let's pray together. God, help us in this moment to recognize that we are not called to borrow the language of the world to define our identity. So help us lean into the meaning of this text, that we are called to be perfect, as in whole and complete, as you are God who is whole and complete, and we were created in your image. So help us hear and receive what you would speak to us this day through the scripture. Where we are complacent, would you inspire us? Where we are hurting, may we feel your healing touch. And where we have unresolved conflict, may we be open to your walking, your insight, your hope, and your healing. We pray this in the name of Christ, in whose name we've gathered, in whose name we will depart and seek to serve faithfully. And all of God's people did say, Amen. The term enemy in English comes from the word imicus, and it means not a friend. Now, we could diminish this in lots of ways and sort of try and dilute it and make it a little softer and just say, well, who are your friends and who are not your friends? But all of us have people with whom we realize for all kinds of different reasons won't be our friends and probably can't be our friends. We have some common values, but the values we hold most tightly put us in conflict with each other, or we've had some life experience that we've not been able to resolve. And so I want to think about this concept of how do we love our enemies. Some so overarching large statements. We're called to love our enemies as a whole culture of people, people who we identify that are on the other side, if you would. The problem is we haven't learned to do that well in our own culture because we are so quick to identify who we are based on our political affiliations and the world around us teaches us that we should crush our enemies and defeat them. And yet we're called by Jesus to love and pray for our enemies. Now, I want to dabble in some ideas. And again, these are not absolute statements. I'm just trying to sort of step on your toes, aim at your heart, irritate you if necessary, hopefully inspire you. But when I've thought about this this week and I've really wrestled with it, I've come to believe that adversaries are necessary in our life. And adversaries are people who usually oppose what we think. In other words, we need some tension in what we're thinking so we don't live in an echo chamber. Part of the problem is we've created echo chambers in political and theology realms where we don't share or speak or have conversations. So adversaries are usually people who will oppose what you think, usually. And enemies are usually people who oppose who you are, not just what you think. And in my reading this week, two things I thought that were just top of the charts worth repeating. First, one commentator said, be sure you remind people they should not seek to be a good enemy. Don't seek to be a good enemy. It's kind of like looking at Matthew chapter 25 and seeing the call of the scripture being so high to be called sheep that our prayer by default becomes, Lord, what would it take to be a really, really good goat? Because being a sheep is just too hard. 
The second thing that I read this week that was really fantastic was be careful when you seek to justify your actions and words because of the words and actions of others. Oh, friends, we all, we all have lived in this moment because when something has something uh, bad happens to somebody, we have a tendency to say, they had it coming to them, right? They had it coming. Or they're going to get their comeuppance. Now, I don't know where in English comeuppance came from. If any of you can enlighten me on that, whether that's a phrase from Louisiana or South Carolina, I don't know. But we all know what it means. So some general things to think about in this concept of enemies. Read before the text today in Matthew chapter 25, and you will see that Jesus directly confronts the imagery of an eye for an eye. And he's talking about an event. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, I tell you, love those who persecute you. He's also said that someone takes your cloak, give them their shirt. These are about events and moments of a how do you, in an event and a moment, not become reactive, but choose to walk away. It's not absolute pacifism, but it's not being drawn in to a fight. But what about those elongated kind of relationships, those things that seem to be emboldened by others or embittered or places where we just shake our head and our blood begins to boil or our blood pressure goes up. If you need to lower your blood pressure, just turn off Facebook and it'll help a lot. So first, who said love your enemies? I mean, if we're going to talk about loving our enemies, who said it? Well, before Jesus said it in these words in Matthew, it was on the lips of the writers of Proverbs in chapter 24 where we're told not to gloat when our enemy falls. Not to gloat when our enemy falls. So I will tell you that Blake DeLacer, our youth director, is a huge Auburn fan. And what I should do for him today is not gloat and not let those from Pennsylvania gloat, but we should comfort him in his time of mourning. I will tell you that he has recorded the game and has no clue of the outcome, so now we know how to pray for him when he watches it on the DVR. Proverbs chapter 25 says we're told to feed our enemy when he's hungry. And this speaks to the wisdom literature that there is a degree in which we choose in the midst of conflict, no matter how we've been wounded, to understand that our actions reflect who we are because you aren't what you say, you are what you do. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. And in, in small ways, we say this, well, let's take the high road. But if we truly believe that all are created in God's image, we must be cautious about thinking in the human worldly terms, you get what you deserve. And then Matthew takes this directly on in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is recorded clearly saying, love your neighbor, but you also should love 
your enemy. So who said love our neighbors? Answer, God did. So why should we love our enemies? Why should we love our enemies? Well, two basic reasons. First is, it's simply because God commands us to do that. He calls us to love our enemies. But secondly, we love our enemies because God first loved us. We can look at constant images that Paul uses in Colossians and Romans that talks about the ways in which once we were no people, but now we're God's people. Once we were enemies to God, in other words, we weren't friends to God. But then we look in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that reminds us that through Christ, God's love has brought salvation to us. It has made us a friend to God. We can look in 1 John chapter 4, a book that is filled with the imagery of the love of God. We love because God first loved us. And my friends, I heard it said this way in rather simple terms, that if you're really going to follow Jesus and be able to love your enemies, then you better have some Jesus on tap. Now, I don't know what that means on tap. Stan, you might be able to help me with that later, but that's a phrase I've heard lots of Methodists use about, right? In other words, we can't give to others what we haven't received ourselves. And I'll be honest, there are times in my humanness I can't love people. I just can't do it in my own humanness. I need to be a vessel through which I receive God's love. And there's lots of times I have literally said to myself, and sometimes it slips out out loud, Jesus loves you, and I'm still working on it. But I know that I'm called to be in a different place, but I'm asking this question. Why should we love our enemies? Because if you don't, then you are letting your hatred or your anger consume you. And the old adage is so true. Hatred is like drinking poison and expecting it to harm another. Now look, I don't know the level of hurt that you have. And maybe you're not at that place yet. I'm just saying... When you look at how you have enemies in your life, simply ask yourself, how much energy does it take to put into hating or having an enemy? And what would it take just to forgive them? Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a doorpost for somebody. Again, I'm going to say that in a minute. But it is important to us to listen to this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this, This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, there's also an expiation, appropriation. It means atoning sacrifice. This ground of God's atoning work and dying on the cross, the root of that and the meaning in the Greek is it's literally like a covering. It is what 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 states so clearly. And maybe you remember this. This is not hallmark. This is the word of God. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's the scripture. You see, we accept God's covering love on us and it gives us the ability to love others, even love our enemies. So what does it mean to love our enemies? I want to start by saying, what, is it, what does it not mean? And I want to be real clear with this. What it does not mean is that you allow people to emotionally, physically, or in any other way continue to harm you. That's not what this is about. Loving your enemies doesn't mean that you're a pacifist doormat walking out and letting people abuse you. That is not what this is. Loving your enemies is not allowing people to harm you or to harm others. Loving your enemies is not about failing to set boundaries and be aware of how you choose a healthy life for your boundaries. In other words, you can love your enemies and say no. 
And sometimes that's because you find your boundary. Now I want to get extremely practical for you. First, I want you to think about who you are and why you react the way you do. And I'm delighted to share with you that there is an author in our midst, Laura McPherson, who's actually taught here. The book, It's Me, Not You, is a fantastic book about helping you recognize what's going on in your life and your life stories. She has a really simple acronym, R-E-A-L, and those, that acronym leads you through ways where you can begin to find out why are you living life the way you are? What's part of your story? Folks, when we think about what we do in justice ministries, we talk about trying to break the cycle, right? The cycle of poverty, the cycle of unhealthiness, the cycle of whatever it is. That's partly because there's not been anybody to insert into that system those assumptions and ask questions that would lead to healthiness. So I commend to you Laura's book, It's Me, Not You, The Key to Healthy Relationships. If you're that kind of person who feels like the only way that you can say uh, that you're loving is to always say yes to everything, then let me commend to you Henry Cloud's book, Boundaries. Because sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is to say no or to have a boundary. I find most everything about life can be discovered. What's the old adage? Uh, everything I ever learned in life, I learned in kindergarten or something. Uh, you know, find me a two or three year old. Are you going to let them do everything they want? Heavens, you're not. No. You're going to set boundaries? You're going to say no sometimes. In between two and three, it's going to be the most common word you use. No. No. And you're going to know that original sin and the depravity of man is, in fact, not only a biblical concept, it is reality. But part of love is having a healthy boundary and having a healthy self-awareness. And while I am not a therapist, I would suggest to you in 35-plus years of ministry, when I see people who are broken and hurting they tend most often to hurt others. And they don't know they're doing it. So failing to love our enemies becomes one of the primary barriers to our pursuing perfection, our being made whole. And even in that brief vignette, as John Wesley spoke about, that that moment when we are fully surrendered to God and God's Holy Spirit fills our lives, and even for a glimpse we know we are made whole in that moment, we'll still have failures, we'll still have faults. But we're not just told to love our enemies. There goes Jesus again, pushing the envelope. Pray for them. Pray for your enemies. How do we pray for our enemies? Well, maybe you need to pray that they would be aware of their actions. Maybe a healing touch needs for you to be able to forgive them in your prayer. Maybe your prayer when you pray for your enemy has less to do with your enemy, but more about your response to your enemy. But don't forget to ask this simple question, God, what do I need to know about why this person who is my enemy feels the way they do about me? Now again, let me restate, I do not know who the people you have conflict with and how they have harmed you or the reason for that. I do want, I am not diminishing 
that you may not be at that place. And quite frankly, for some people, it may not even be appropriate just to immediately say, hey, I'm just going to forgive you for that. You're not there. I'm not suggesting that. Because you're supposed to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. But the truth is that there are many times that it's difficult to love our enemies. We may not be in place, that place yet. But we're either working towards having the sense of being reconciled to whatever pain has been caused or who our enemy is, or we're letting it grow. Are you working towards reconciliation for that, or are you letting it grow? Are you letting it fester, or is it diminishing? Mother Teresa said this, the hunger for love is much more difficult to remove than the hunger for bread. The hunger to love is much more difficult to remove than the hunger for bread. So I think we generally understand it. God is love, and we know love because God first loved us, and we are called to love not only those that love us, but even our enemies. So I want to conclude today by giving you a little bit of information that you can find on the United Methodist Denominational webpage. This is from Sermon 23 of John Wesley. If this bothers you, then blame John Wesley, not me. He said the following things in Sermon uh, 23 on the Sermon on the Mount. First, he said, you need to love your enemies plainly. He see that you bear a tender goodwill to those who are most bitter of spirit against you, who wish all manner of evil. Now, this is Bert's interpretation. If you know you have an enemy and you know you have a conflict, avoid it if you know it's only going to bring conflict. I don't know if that's a good therapeutic thing, but I'll find out from those who are therapists later. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, if you know there's a place that's only going to create the conflict, don't just put yourself in it all the time and expect a different result. But where you have that, be prepared. Bear goodwill. Secondly, he said, bless those that curse you. And Wesley said, are those whose bitterness of spirit breaks forth in bitter words? He says two things. First, when you converse with them, use all mildness and softness of language. And secondly, he said, in speaking with them, say all the good you can without violating the rules of truth and justice. I love that. Wesley says, don't violate who you are or truth or justice, but do all the good you can. Thirdly, he said, do good to those that hate you. He said, let your actions show that you are as real in love as they are in hatred. Return good for evil. And as the scripture says, be not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. And then lastly, Wesley's clue to us is, if you can do nothing more, at least pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That's a strong phrase, despitefully use you and persecute he says this, and this is the hard part. You can never be disabled from doing this, nor can all their malice or violence hinder you. In other words, the most important thing when we think about how to love our enemies is to remember their actions may harm you, but they don't determine the choices that you make. Their actions may harm you, but they don't determine the choices that you make. So again, contact any of us as pastors. I in no way want to suggest that I know who your enemies are or the pain that you're feeling or the harm that has been caused to you. And maybe this will be a, 
a, a jump start of conversation. And I will say from my training as a law enforcement chaplain, um, there is this concept known as venting and validating, which is simply you've had a traumatic event and sometimes the best way to get through it in the first step is just to sit down and say, you will not believe what happened. And it's amazing how healing it happens, what happens to the healing inside when you begin to vent and share what's going on. But my friends, if we're going to be the church that God calls us to be, then we have to be the individuals God calls us to be. And we have to understand, we are called to a great high calling to love our enemies, those with whom we have disagreement. And not just that, we're called to pray for them. Let's pray together. God, I wish there was a beautiful little poem that could wrap this up and make me feel better about this challenge. But the reality is, this is just messy, hard stuff. I pray that anything I've said that has been helpful would be nurtured by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Anything that I have said in this sermon that has been hurtful or non-helpful, you would let be diminished. What I ask is that we would all recognize where we need to make more room for the movement of your Holy Spirit so that we would be made whole and complete just as you, the one who created us and molded us, is whole and complete. For this we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people did say, Amen. Amen.